This episode is brought to you by the incredible queen, Justice Brown Jackson, for being the first Black woman to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. Welcome back, everybody, to My Fave Queer Chemist. I'm your host, Beck. And I'm Geraldo. First of all, we want to say congratulations to everyone that applied for NSF. Applying for fellowship is not easy, so y'all should be proud of yourselves regardless of the outcome. We hope y'all enjoyed this interview as much as we did recording it. With that, here's our show. Okay, hello everybody. Today we are very, very excited to introduce you to an amazing scientist. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Michelle Bushy. My pronouns are uh, she, her. I went to undergraduate school at Oberlin College and I was a chemistry major there. And then after college, I I wasn't really ready to move on in chemistry yet. So I went into Peace Corps for two years and taught high school in Kenya. And then from there, I went on to UNC Chapel Hill and worked with Jim Jorgensen in, in, in really kind of the heyday of his lab when we were working on capillary electrophoresis and then I was working um, for, that was part of what I was doing, some high resolution separations. And then I moved into two-dimensional comprehensive chromatography where we, where we were combining LC with LC and then LC with CE. And um, nice. then from there, I went to Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. And then from there, I went on to the National Science Foundation where I began as a rotator and now I'm a permanent program director. So exciting. Um, yeah. So to start off, can you tell us kind of the story of how you first got interested in chemistry? Oh, um, yeah, well, I guess I should back up too, because I did mention National Science Foundation. And, and let me start by saying all of these opinions and views are mine and not those of my employer or the federal <laughs> government. So I'm just representing myself here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So um, where I where I got into chemistry, um, like many people, it was, it was my, my, really my high school chemistry teacher. I grew up in Vermont, sometimes actually literally in a barn. Uh, I spent a lot of time in a barn there and really grew up loving, loving nature and, and the outdoors. And I, I knew that I would, I thought I was going to like chemistry. And so I made sure I got into the right chemistry class in high school and that worked out. Um, and Mrs. Gallagher was amazing. And I still remember the first day in her class, it was like 55 minute class or something. And she just talked to us for the whole time. And she started with solids and materials around us. And she talked about liquids and she talked about gas and she talked about air and she started to just deconstruct things. And so she spent a lot of time on air and she gets down to atoms and and molecules. And then she gets down to the structure of an atom. And this is all happening over like, again, this this 55 minute class and she gets down. Okay. So here's the electron and here's the, the nucleus, you know, we've talked about what the nucleus is and what the electron is. And we have a set and she did a sense of relative scales of sizes. And at the very end, she asks us, so if that's, you know, what's making, what's between the nucleus and the electron? And my head just exploded. I was like, for the first time, I had the concept of nothing. And of course, half the class shouts out air, which, you know, we'll learn as a bad, but 
I mean, it was just, it was, it was a phenomenal moment to me. I just was, was amazed by that. And so then when I went into the Peace Corps, I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to hook these students from day one. I'm, I'm going to do the same thing that my high school teacher did for me. And so this was a, a form two class. It was the English system. And there was like six students in this chemistry class. And it's this little tiny mud hut. And the only light comes in the door and it's this little two by three foot slate you know, impacted on the wall. And so I'm there and I'm, I'm going through this and they're so rapt attention. It was great. I thought, wow, I've really got them. I'm really channeling Mrs. Gallagher. And then I realized later they couldn't speak English. And <laughs> their rapt attention had nothing to do with what I was saying. I was probably, you know, one of the, the first white people that they had seen up close. This is a pretty rural area of Kenya. And so that kind of brought me back to earth a little bit. <laughs> I love I love the story because, you know, in the show, we've interviewed people that are in academia, like POIs, R1s, industry, national places. And like almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone starts their career in chemistry from their high school chemistry teacher. And it's just the impact that they have on a lot of people. <laughs> it's just, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear it over and over again about, about those amazing high school teachers. Um, I don't know how they do it this way, because when I was back in Texas, they had started to cut down the size. When my kids started high school, they had pretty long labs, or or Mm -hmm. they had days when they had double classes and stuff, so they could do labs. And then they started to cut them down, and they were like 45-minute classes. And Mm -hmm. how do you do anything in 45 minutes? That's really tough. So Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine having, I didn't have labs in my high school chemistry, but that would be like really cool. So you can like actually start doing chemistry in high school. That's so nice. Yeah, we, I, I remember we us doing a few things. I remember measuring the size of a molecule when you do the, the oil drop on the dust. And so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, continuing your, your chemistry career, you, like you mentioned, you started off at Oberlin College where you did your undergrad in chemistry. And then after some time, you went to UNC Chapel Hill for your PhD. Um, so how was your experience during, during this time in this like two institutions? Quite different. I, I went, I chose Oberlin. I was at the end choosing between two different schools and the other school, oh, they really wanted me to go. And I, I felt like my pathway there was, was pretty clear. You had to apply to pre-med separately. And I had done that. I had gotten in and they were really wanting me to go. And I thought that I could kind of see the path that I was going to go on clearly. And Oberlin was very different. I grew up in Northern Vermont. It's a, even, you know, it's, it's a little bit more diverse now, but it, it sure wasn't then. Um, and Oberlin was like this, this whole new area. And I did not see my pathway there. Um, They were, you know, I got in great, but it was a very different kind of school. And I got there and I, and I loved it, but I I chose it in part because it was, there was so much unknown about it. And I didn't know how I was going to react in that environment. Um, But that's kind of what I wanted. And it was conveniently far enough away from my parents, so they couldn't drop in unexpectedly. So there's some added benefits there. Um, but I, I was still in chemistry. And so I, I followed that. But I was, um, 
you know, I, I would say I had a lot of growing up to do at that point, and, and a lot of my college energy was spent on things other than chemistry. Saturday night poker games and uh, co-ops. Poker and, games. That's oh, yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah, it was that, was that was loads of fun. And, you know, every, everyone at Oberlin felt like they were a misfit and different. So, so that that clued in there. And, you know, I still go back every five years for a reunion. But I was, I don't know, mediocre, maybe underselling it a little bit. But I was not a stellar chemistry student, shall we say that? Um, and, and actually, halfway through, I decided I, I, I hated organic chemistry. I loved the lab, but I didn't like the class. And, and we, so we're just, hurt. We're, we're so hurt right now. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I, I went to, but I went and played biology major for a semester. And that was, you know, it was dis- dissecting worms and mm-hmm. fetal pigs and, you know, didn't, didn't do much for me. And I missed the chemistry lab. And so I came back and I was really out of sequence at that point. But then I, I came back into the analytical sequence. And that made sense to me because you should be able to measure it, you know? And, and so that measurement aspect of it brought me back in and then physical chemistry as well. I had a really interesting instructor for physical chemistry. And again, it was all out of sequence, but I wasn't ready for grad school at the end of that. And so I decided to try Peace Corps for a few years and, and really, really loved that. And Oberlin was an, was an interesting place for, um, it was a very welcoming place for LGBTQ, um, but I wasn't really fully out then. I was, I had approached some women and, and, you know, kind of wondering about that, but I got rebuffed, I guess, a few times and, and I didn't have a good role model. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I was kind of fumbling around with, with all of that. And so I, I went the path of least resistance. And then when I got into Peace Corps, I ended up getting married right at the beginning of it. And I didn't really view myself as so much straight as I did monogamous. Mm -hmm. And so kind of carried through with that. And then at the end of Peace Corps, I felt a lot more confident about going on in chemistry and I wanted the life that my professors had had at Oberlin. You know, that was kind of a nice model. I wanted this undergraduate school. I wanted to be research active and, and be fully immersed in that. I wanted to go back to Oberlin. Basically. Um, so I applied to schools, which was also really interesting because this was, I was applying back in, oh, I'm old, uh, 1985. <laughs> And this is so pre-internet, no cell phones. There was one manual typewriter that I had, maybe it was electric, but one typewriter that I had access to in Nairobi. And so I would have to, it was like a 24 hour trip to get to this one typewriter and sometimes other people were using it. And I remember writing letters to the graduate schools, very carefully outlining, I am a US citizen, I'm living abroad, please send me this application. And invariably they would send me the foreign student application. So then I have to turn around and write it. And it's just like at least a 10 day process, 10, 10 days to two weeks for these letters to go back and forth. So you had to plan ahead. Um, but finally I applied and chose my school from brochures I never visited, did an interview and, and show, you know, I think I got into four out of my six schools and ranked them and, and fortunately chose really well. <laughs> 
Um, so that's, that, that's crazy choosing like, <laughs> without, without like visiting mm-hmm. and not even being able to like just Google search and like yeah. stock mm-hmm. and find as much information as you can about the schools. Like that's or like crazy. Zoom meetings, you know, because yeah, yeah. you know, sort of, but very dissimilar. Something happened during the pandemic where people couldn't yeah. visit grad school, but they could still, you know, communicate through, you know, either internet. But yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Very yeah, very different. Yeah, it was it was definitely a, a leap of faith. And mm-hmm. um, but when I, you know, you kind of go around and you hear the professors talk about what they're doing, and when I heard um, Jim Jorgensen talking about capillary electrophoresis. Um, it was like that, that high school moment again, I was just totally hooked right away. And it just sounded so, so cool. So I was really lucky to get into that group and, and to get into that group at that right time. Yeah. yeah. So, but so like, being at, so being at UNC, was definitely like the right choice and, and was a pretty like fulfilling graduate experience. Yeah, it, it was really good. And it, it was very different from Oberlin because in Oberlin, my attention was almost everywhere but chemistry. And at UNC, I'm coming in and I'm married. And most of the people in my research group were, um, if not married, strongly connected to, to another person, um, which was a little unusual. You know, sometimes there would be one or two people in a group, but not to that extent that I was aware of. And so the focus at that point was totally on the research group. And for me, even very little outside, even in the chemistry department, I was taking classes and stuff like that, but my main focus and target was all on the research. And so, I mean, I had things going on outside of that, but unlike Oberlin, I wasn't totally scattered all over the place. Uh, But so it was an interesting time. no, No poker, no poker nights. (laughs) <laughs> no poker nights there. No, but we, we had our fun, but no poker nights. But it was also, it was, it was a weird kind of place. And it wasn't, you know, Oberlin is again very LGBTQ friendly. You know, there's a gay student union, there's a women's collective, all that was in place. Um, I I wasn't as in, embedded in, in, in the campus community at UNC, but what I was surrounded with was not as friendly. Um, and, and the whole vibe at that time, to me, I, I characterize it as sort of a what, bit of a Wild West kind of attitude, sort of like the, the, the freewheeling, the early version of Star Trek, you know, kind of attitude, which was fun and great. But, you know, there, there's, some, there's some issues there. I do have a mug that says, what would Kirk do? But um, it, was, it was just an interesting kind of, kind of time. And so, yeah, things were just very different and, and very focused there. Scientifically, it was a fantastic place to be and incredibly exciting. And we were like right there at the beginning of it. And all, all that was really terrific. Yeah. So. I was going to say then, then when I was getting ready to finish, um, I knew what I wanted to do. It was an under, I wanted to go teach at an undergraduate school. And I think analytical chemistry, you know, around that time was, was kind of one of the last disciplines to really be embracing postdocs. Um, and because you could walk out of grad school and go into, especially in the areas that I was in, walk into a pharmaceutical company and, and you were taken care of. And I want to say there are fewer analytical chemists than there are other types generally. I mean, maybe on par with physical, but there's a, probably a lot more bio and organic than there are analytical. So maybe that, maybe that was also a function of the number of positions, but it wasn't, um, totally out of question to move on without a postdoc. Um, it, things were in maybe shifting at that point. And when the ad came up for Trinity, it, it really 
spoke to me. Um, I wasn't enthusiastic about Texas, but I did some research on San Antonio, and San Antonio is, is an interesting place, you know, and so I do like San Antonio. Um, and I went and interviewed there, and the interview went great. And so I really, I really um, enjoyed that a lot. And fortunately, it worked out. I got back to UNC after the interview. I thought everything was fine. And I had in my hand at that point a ticket to go to Hawaii to interview at University of Hawaii. But it wasn't the kind of school I really wanted to be at. And the interview at Trinity really made that very clear to me. And I had to eat the cost of the ticket, which for a grad student was, was a lot, but I canceled the interview. Um, and fortunately, I got the job at Trinity. So, but I, I did that cancellation before, before they offered it to me because of the timing and all that. I didn't want to take a week away from work to go out there or waste their money on, a, on an interview that I wasn't anymore, would be a great place to live, but you know, it really wasn't where I wanted my career to go. Um, so I went to Trinity and- So you've been at Trinity for the majority of your academic career. So kind of what was the process going through like your kind of journey as an academic and a professor at like the same institution? Um, and then kind of what started to shift in terms of like wanting to work at a place like NSF? Like what was that process like? Right. So um, I got to, to Trinity uh, about 1990 and, and spent, that's where I came up in, in, in my career. Um, I got tenure and I, I got promoted. I worked with, and, and Trinity has a very active undergraduate research program. Over the, I, I left Trinity. It's a little fuzzy because when I when I made the transition, you kind of go in as a, on a temporary position and then become permanent later on. So somewhere between 2014 and 2016, I'm exiting Trinity. Uh, but I had 105 undergrads um, working with me over the course of that time. Five of them actually were were high school students, so 100 undergrads and five high school students, and you know they were really terrific. During the summers, we had roughly eight faculty, sometimes those numbers shifted, and we would have summer research students, numbers of 35 to almost 50 some years. So there were a lot of students. I would have a group of four to eight in the summer. Other students would continue on during the year. So it was a really, really vibrant place for that. Um, and there were, there were a, lot of, a lot of good things about what was, what was going on there. And when I arrived at Trinity, I had absolutely marvelous colleagues who were ahead of me. And I published with several of them. Um, they were in, in very different ways, really important mentors and role models, uh, taking bits and pieces of, of each of them. And they were all very supportive. So it was a, it was a good place. But then, I, you know, one thing about small colleges is they do often tend to become the, the small ponds with the big fish. And so it, eventually that, that veneer is kind of, you know, it, there can be some, some issues. But I, I found myself later on, uh, I, I kind of characterize it as flinging myself across campus in various ways. I was um, in both research and teaching and grant activities. I was collaborating with people in 
let's see, chemistry, biology, engineering, geology, art, modern languages, religion, economics. I was teaching chemistry of art to non-science majors, which was loads of fun. Um, That's but then so I was, fun. That sounds was, like a, a really cool class. It was a lot, a lot of fun. It took a lot of work, but it was um, really marvelous. And actually, it kind of morphed into um, a, whole, a research direction for me as well. But I was also, I was teaching first-year seminar classes on things, you know, there was a, a science and religion first-year seminar, which you can relate to science and chemistry. So that was great. But I was also teaching a first-year seminar at one point on immigration. So I was just all over the place. And, and looking back at it, I mean, it was clearly, uh, there was a need for change, both professionally and personally at that point. And so I had wanted to, to throughout my career, I often thought about going to NSF. And I had known multiple program directors, some of them at, in, at Trinity and others who I met through um, interactions just kind of in general chemistry circles. But I had always kind of put it off. I, I did have a spouse who was employed at Trinity and it seemed awkward to go for a year or two and how was that gonna work? And then I had a couple of kids and so how was that gonna work? So I'd kind of put it off and, and think when the kids are out of the house. Um, and so, you know, I get to that point and this is about the time when I'm just kind of spread all over the place on campus. So I decided, you know, as the last kid was, was leaving the house, that was also the time I, I went to, to NSF. And I had always thought that I would go to the Division of Undergraduate Education because that had been where most of my grant activity from NSF had been. But they didn't have anything open when I was finally ready to go. And another chemistry colleague who also worked for Jorgensen said to me, you know, you should look into the chemistry division. You should go there. And I thought, well, I don't know, go to the chemistry. That's, you know. Um, but I applied and things worked out, and there was a spot for me there after all. So yeah. That's so nice. So so then you found your way to NSF, right? And so can you tell us a little bit about what you do there? You know, if you if you can tell us a little bit about that. And right. you know, no, I could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what are some like differences, you know, working in like policy spaces versus you know, your time right. in academia. Right. Yeah. A lot, a lot of differences. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a big move, move coming to NSF. And, you know, I spent three weeks sort of in that process, getting divorced, moving across the country twice, actually um, sending my kid off to college. I went to a conference in the middle of it in those three weeks and then kind of set up here to, to work at NSF and was, um, so there's all this stuff going on. It was changing careers, just upending everything. And when I started out at NSF, then I'm working, uh, first of all, in a number of different programs, but research experiences for undergraduate sites. And so I was working there. Chemistry pairs people up a lot. There's often teams of program directors who are working in in individual programs. So I had that program. I was also in chemical measurement and imaging where I was working on um, proposals related to separations, sometimes electrochemistry, sometimes sensors, that kind of thing. And I would also work on what we call special projects which is sort of the unicorns that come through. So if, the, if we want to, to fund a workshop on something 
or if there's something in the area of broadening participation that we're sorting funding, something that's a little, a little different, doesn't fit the core programs. And then eventually I started working with the chemical, uh, with the Centers for Chemical Innovation. And so I worked in that program for a few years, both with the phase one centers and the phase two centers. Um, and then, and I was doing a lot of outreach, so doing a lot of that. And then last August, I started a, what we call a detail in the um, Mathematical and Physical Sciences Directorate, where I'm the staff associate now. And my focus now is, is largely on programs focusing on broadening participation. We've launched a new program called LEAPS, which supports faculty who haven't been supported by NSF before. We've launched a uh, postdoctoral support program recently. So we're looking at those sorts of things. So I've been, been doing that. And uh, so that, again, that's a one-year detail. And I guess the, the, the easiest thing to, to say that in terms of difference between the two, there's no students at NSF, which is, you know, I miss them a lot. When I, when I was do, in the transition, uh, the first part of that transition is, is that you're as a rotator and you maintain a footprint back at home. And so I, I was doing that and going back and forth. And when I went back to lab, I had a postdoc who was working with me at that point. And I saw what the students were doing in lab in the summer. That was like, oh, that was so hard. That was, uh, that really kind of hit me. Uh, what I what I was missing at that point. And I'm not in research as, you know, I do have a little bit of my time now that can be put towards research, but I don't have a lab. Most of my time now is, is wrapping up some of the things that we had done before. So there's that. There's no grading, which is a good thing. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty nice. <laughs> that's very nice. Yes. Um, I do, I do find that working now with, with, I do a lot of outreach a lot of webinars on various programs. I've gone out to places as well. And I find that, um, and even when I was working back in the programs in chemistry, you often are talking to the, to the proposal writers, you know, sometimes the ones that get declined, sometimes the ones that are, are, have yet to submit. And I do find that I really enjoy that a lot. I really like working with the, the newer, especially the newer um, PIs, and that kind of helps to fill a little bit of that void left by the the no students but you know the behavior of people that you're working with is different in the federal government and you know we we can't we don't have the luxury of being a small fish or a small pond with with big fish you know people people rally around the mission really well there's a people have to behave themselves better in some ways they don't have to do that on campus they do many times but they don't have to um, and then there's the, you know, the adage of better to ask for permission and not forgiveness. And that's not true in the government. In government, you ask for permission and you never want to have to ask for forgiveness side of things. So there's, you know, you got to accept a few more, a few more rules and things like that. But I really love how people rally around the mission. And I'm surrounded by people who are really dedicated to, to service. And that's always been a very big part of, of my career. And so I, I feel like I fit with that really well. I, I really enjoy that part of it. Um, I, I like drafting new solicitations and, and where before I had somewhat of an impact, I hope, on, on those 105 students who were in my lab and, and the others in my class. Now that, that 
impact is is different and, and maybe broader. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can leave a, a lasting impact there. I'm sure that you will I'm yeah. in, in both spheres, like both your academic career and your time at NSF. I mean, it sounds like it fits really like even though they're two completely different kind of like careers and like jobs, it sounds like they do really complement each mm -hmm. other and kind of like the skills and your experience in academia sounds like it really has helped make your time at NSF like more fruitful and more, mm -hmm. you know, valuable. Yeah, I th I, there are some similarities and many of the people that I'm surrounded by are from academia. You know, most of the of the program director workforce comes in that way. So, you know, very That's familiar. pretty and nice. So you have, yeah. Yeah, and people are interacting with with um, academics all the time too. So, we not quite again, we don't have to grade papers. But. <laughs> Then that's, yeah, that's pretty nice. So do you have any advice for younger students, uh, maybe graduate students, postdocs, or maybe people who are in an academic career right now um, who have an interest in pursuing a career in science policy and, you know, education outreach, kind of like the work that's done at NSF? Do you have any advice for them? Right. Um, very little, because that wasn't really my pathway. And, and I don't know how accurate what I'm gonna say is. Um, first off, there's places like the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And you know, there's a lot of resources on that webpage and, and a lot of mechanisms. You can become you know, a AAAS fellow and go find out if policy is what you wanna get into. And if someone really wants to jump into it at that level, I would, I would encourage them to, to look around. And I'm sure that there are other places out there as well. Again, I'm not quite as familiar with it. I do kind of wonder though, if it, if it makes a difference when you enter in terms of the type of policy work you want to do, you can certainly jump in early, but I kind of wonder if establishing your credentials somewhere else first and then moving over might move you into a different, a different type of policy. And, you know, that's kind of the path that I took. So you gotta, you gotta take this a little with a lot of bias. No, that, no that, makes, that makes sense though. Kind of like depending on what background you're coming from and what previous experiences you have can influence yeah. kind of what type of science policy or outreach you end up doing at a place like NSF. Yeah, and I don't know how those pathways work if you were to enter through something sooner out of grad school or, or with a postdoc as opposed to having established your credentials maybe in, a, in an academic position or something like that. But I, I guess the other thing is, is I would say, you know, be bold. And, and don't be afraid of that big leap. You know, I've always had a, a good, strong case of imposter syndrome, but I, I think most of us do. And, you know, I've gotten so much out of a lot of the big leaps that I've, that I've taken. And you know what, it's worked out. They're scary. But you know they can be really fun and incredibly rewarding too. Yeah, that, that's very really nice. nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's always like thrilling, you know, and you don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> Just go for it. 
Yeah, and and I think that kind of gets back to when I was working right. across campus with other mm-hmm. people. It was those very different interactions that was mm-hmm. really energizing, and yeah. you know I had these very very different classroom experiences, really different grant writing experiences, and I, I had a whole new research component that that added in, and you know it was just really exciting to make those changes. And then coming mm-hmm. here was also um, really energizing. Yeah. So we've talked how, you know, about how interesting and rich your career has been. So what is one of the biggest things that you've learned about yourself you know, in, the, in the, in the chemistry field during this time, you know, your career, you know, studying, yeah. working, going to different places? Um, it's, it's a little, a little hard to to pin that down and it's a hard question imposter syndrome right so you know but i i i do have skill a skill set there are some things that i can bring to the table i think i i'm generally efficient and i'm i think i'm a good synthesizer and i'm good at when i'm sitting around the table bringing in a very different view and I think I can also step back and see the forest a little bit more um, when other people are still looking at the tree in front of them. I think, I think that goes along with being a little bit of an introvert and an observer, but so I can, I can do those things. And, you know, I've, I've again, I've had that impact on, on my students and I, and I hope that, that they, appreciate that and and you know hopefully I've had some, a good impact on them and um, again I'm hoping to have to still be having some kind of impact like that now and um, with the types of programs that I'm working in. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a great answer. So one of the last questions that we have for you is who is your chemistry or science role model and why and you can have more than one answer. So I think I, I've listened to multiple of your podcasts and everyone says, I thought about this a lot. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but I did, but you know what, I guess what I thought about was, you know, at each of these stages, what, who was, was important to me. And, and I think I've mentioned most of them, you know, my, my high school chemistry teacher, just like I said, just blew my head up. I mean, my jaw was on the floor when, when that idea made its way in, there were, there were several professors at Oberlin that were important. I think Norm Craig uh, was an amazing person and thoroughly dedicated to what he did, but also lived a very rich and full life, you know, so he was, he was a, an interesting guy, very, a life well lived with him. Richard Schoonmaker was a tough, was a tough guy, but I had success in his class and encouragement from him at the right time. And that's when I had come back from biology and was in his PCHEM class. Jim Jorgensen's lab was incredibly exciting. And to be around him at, at that point in his career was really inspiring. And then John Burke, Bill Curtin, Ben Plummer, Nancy Mills, Mike Doyle, and Pat Hole were the people who were in front of me at Trinity and so supportive because I went, I was so green right out of grads. I, you know, they hired me, but 
I was so green and and I would not have been successful without their support. They were they were crucial to that. And then the the people that I work with now at NSF, again, their 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 dedication to public service and and what they give to the job, their willingness to stretch the 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 depth and breadth of their knowledge and um it, it's really it's a great place to work and really fun to see what they're doing. That's a lot. That, that's beautiful answer. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great answer. No, yeah. that's good. That's why, like, yeah, when we like first started this podcast, we were like, just like, who's your favorite role model? Like just mm-hmm. one. And then everyone, like the first like 15 episodes we do, we're like, we can't just choose one. Like I have to like tell you all of these people who are very instrumental Mm -hmm. and like then like role models who I've never met. Like there's just lots of, lots of answers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, so yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows the importance of like, you know, the support of mentors and peers and, and, and how, you know, far you can get when you have people like that in your, in your life and your upbringing, your career and everything. So, so sweet. Thank you so much. Um, so our last question, where can people follow you on social media if they want to connect with you? I'm a bit of a lot, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only real social media that I'm on is, is Facebook, and, mm-hmm. and people might be able to find me there, but um, I keep that profile just to my friends. Yeah, so sure. I would say if, they, if someone really wants to reach out to me, there's, there's two email addresses. Mm-hmm. And once, once they connect that way, then we can connect on, on Facebook if right. they want to. Uh, my Facebook site is, is purely personal. I don't mm-hmm. do any kind of business on there. And I don't bother with LinkedIn. I'm not really on that. So <laughs> mbushy at trinity.edu. If you poke around on the Trinity website, you will find me. You'll get an auto message, but I will get the email. So if somebody wants to connect there, they can. And if somebody wants to find me at NSF, probably better to contact me there if that's if you're kind of interested in, in NSF things mm-hmm. and not, not other things. The Trinity email is, is the better one, but I will connect that way. And I will make my disclaimer one more time. Yes. Anything I've said is just me. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with NSF. Um, and I'm not representing NSF, just, just my own views. Well, we thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing um, this very unique experience that you have with us and with our listeners. And yeah, we just really appreciate talking with you. Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Good. good. (laughs) Thank you so much. Then have a good night. Yeah, have a good night. Bye. Our hearts are with all of those in Ukraine during this horrific war. We hope for safety and peace for all Ukrainians. And we hope they all are staying safe out there during this new COVID wave as well. Remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter. If you're interested in being interviewed for the show, you can follow us at MFQC pod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Adios.